So, like they said, my name is Ray Schaff, um, and I'm guessing I may not be super familiar looking to a lot of people here, and that's because I graduated two years ago, um, and this is my second year working with Crew, uh, but this is my first year at Ball State. I spent last year with, um, on stint in East Asia with, here with Crew, or, or with Crew, um, but now I work with the Greek ministry, Greek crew here, um, so we, we reach out to the fraternity men and uh, sorority women on campus. <clears throat> a little bit about me is I am recently married to the lovely and gorgeous Aaron Schaff, formerly Martini. <laughs> yeah, so that happened uh, not too long ago, November 21st, um, so just a little over three months, so I think I'm a professional. Um, at marriage. Uh, we have a book coming out in the fall. Um, another thing is, I love sports. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Watching, talking, playing, dreaming, eating, breathing sports. Uh, baske- basketball is my favorite, specifically the NBA. Uh, go Heat. Um, another thing, yeah, 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 yeah. You all just hate on us because we have three championships. Um, Another thing about me is that I'm the pickiest eater you will ever meet, and I guarantee that. Um, uh, you could, some people could be thinking, yeah, but you don't know this person. Um, I guarantee that you're wrong, and I'm the pickiest eater you will ever meet. I don't like Chinese, I don't like Mexican, and I barely like Italian. What I eat is what I classify as ballpark food, so anything you can go to an American sporting event and buy, I will eat that, outside of nachos. I don't like nachos. Um, The last thing that you guys need to know about me is that I hate wearing anything other than basketball shorts and Nike shirts. Um, For those of you that know me at all, I'm guessing you've already thought or even said to me, this is probably the first time I've ever seen you in jeans. There's a reason for that. I hate them. They're too restrictive. I don't know why y'all like skinny jeans. What? That's weird. Um, I seriously considered wearing sweats up here on stage, but went against it because I probably shouldn't. Uh, but in all seriousness, all seriousness, I'm really glad to talk to you guys tonight about making disciples and can't wait to get started. So let me pray for us and we can begin. Dear Lord, I want to thank you for tonight and the people in this room. Thank you for getting these people here safely, and thank you for their individual stories. Lord, I humbly ask that you use me tonight, not letting the words come out of my mouth be from me, but that they come from you. Please just let me be a tool for you tonight, and I ask that you use tonight's talk to light a fire in these students' hearts, not only for you, but to go and make disciples of all the nations. In your name we pray, amen. So, how many of you guys like autocorrect? A couple of people? Yeah, I heard some mess. So, how many of you guys get a little uneasy when that little red or green squiggle pops up under a word that you've written? Yep. That little squiggle brings out two things in people. For some, it could just deflate you for a second. Like, I should know that, or I can't believe I just did that. On the other hand... People get angry at that squiggle, thinking or saying out loud things like, you don't know my life, little squiggle. 
I nailed that word. How dare you think that I misspelled it? Or, I know how to spell that word, but my fingers can't keep up with the great intellect that my mind is, and that's why I, it was spelled wrong. I definitely fall my, find myself falling into that second category. I get ticked off just seeing, seeing that squiggle pop up, and I often mutter under my breath as I type and then retype to get that thing off my screen. I bring this up because did you guys know that according to Microsoft Word and my iPhone, the words discipleship, discipled, and discipling are not recognized as words. So you can imagine how annoyed I got at writing a talk on making disciples and seeing those squiggles are being suggested another word. Back off Steve Jobs, I know what I'm doing. But after a while, I started to get a little sad over the fact that technology nowadays doesn't recognize these as words, which they certainly are. We don't use them enough for them to be included. Why is that? Why? So, before we take a look at our two passages for this evening, I want to acknowledge two different resources that I used in preparing this talk. The first is the book Multiply by Francis Chan. The second is an article on the website desiringgod.org entitled The Heart of Discipleship by Jonathan Parnell. I would highly recommend reading both of these things if you have any questions about anything I say tonight. So, like I said, we're going to be working through two different passages tonight. The first comes from Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which some of you may recognize as the Great Commission. So that says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." The second passage that we're looking at is going to be in Matthew 9, uh, 37 and 38. And what that, that uh, verse or that passage is, uh, is it says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So before we dive into these passages, I really want to break down what discipleship is, and, um, and I will start by defining what it is and isn't. Merriam-Webster defines a disciple as one who accepts and assists in spreading the doctrines of another. When we apply this word to a Christian context, a disciple is one who learns from Jesus to live like Jesus. Someone who, because of God's awakening grace, conforms his or her words and ways to the words and ways of Jesus. Something that I want to stress to you is that you first must be a disciple of Christ before you can multiply and make disciples of Christ. For those of you who are familiar with crew and what happens outside this weekly meeting, I, you may believe you have an idea what discipleship is. A common misconception is that discipleship is simply getting together with your discipler at Jamba Juice every Tuesday at 1 and going over scripture, a crew article, and ways to guard your heart. It is and isn't that at the same time. Discipleship looks very different to every single person, so there's not a clear-cut way to go about this. However, the point of discipleship is for someone to purposefully come alongside you in your walk with the Lord and aid you on that journey, sharing insights and alternate viewpoints when needed. This is done with the purpose of turning the discipled into the discipler themselves, to continue to multiply, multiply the gospel and help other believers deepen their relationships with the Lord. 
But sometimes we go about the, doing this in the wrong way or for the wrong motivations. Sometimes we think of discipleship as a time to hang out and occasionally talk about God as long, it doesn't hurt your, as long as it doesn't hurt your disciples' feelings. Or sometimes we might not even know that we're being discipled, just thinking that we're meeting up every week because that's the way class schedules work out and we're really good friends. That isn't discipleship. <clears throat> we also tend to overthink and overanalyze how to go about discipleship. But discipleship is something that actually comes naturally to us, although we may call it something different. Say, for example, you're struggling with some homework and you don't know what to do or what's going on or even why you're in that class to begin with. I, know, I think we've all been there because I know I have. But why do we do about this? More often than not, we seek out someone, a student more than likely, who gets it or even the professor to help us out. They come alongside us and help us learn the subject matter. That's discipleship that we call tutoring. Or how about Greek life? Shout out to those Greeks out there. But for those of you, <laughs> but for those of you who do not know a ton about the Greek system, soon after joining a fraternity or sorority, you go through a process that matches you up with a big. You become their little. Your big is responsible for helping you learn the ins and outs of the chapter that you are in, showing you the traditions and nuances of the house and connecting you to opportunities that help you grow in fellowship with the others in your chapter. They also help you transition into Greek life and all the stresses that come with it. That's discipleship. We do it already, so why are we so hesitant to do it when it comes to our spiritual lives? So earlier I said that to make disciples, you must first be a disciple of Jesus. But outside that definition that I gave, what does that mean? What it doesn't mean is that when you decide to become a disciple of Jesus, Jesus is literally going to show up right in front of you, decree, or inscribing your name in the Gospels and Acts, and saying that from now on there's going to be 13 original disciples instead of 12. But I want to give you a couple of things on what that does mean to become a disciple of Jesus. First, to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, doesn't mean that you simply go to church every Sunday and intellectually agree with Jesus. It means mainly, first and central, to worship him with joy and love at the heart. Making disciples of Jesus means gathering his worshipers. Secondly, to be a disciple of Jesus means to serve like him. It means to serve primarily by humbling yourself and serving your brothers and sisters in acts of love, even when it's inconvenient or uncomfortable, and when it goes upstream of what the world says you should do and what the world's expectations of you are. Making disciples of Jesus makes, means making servants who love one another. Thirdly, to be a disciple of Jesus means to point people to him. It means to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love so that others would know him and worship him. It means, in other words, that we gladly seek more worshipers slash servants slash missionaries, which is to say a disciple of Jesus makes disciples of Jesus as Jesus tells us to do. The bottom line is that there is never a situation in which a disciple of something does not end up like that person or idea. Luke 6.40 clearly states this by saying, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. I want to emphasize this need to first be a disciple of Jesus so that we can make disciples ourselves. So <clears throat> there, I'm guessing there's a couple people, more than a couple, that have been here throughout our entire talk series, 
which is entitled Living Purposely in Light of Eternity. And this talk has been purposely, pun intended, placed in, the, in, in this order. Um, all the subjects talked on previously, whether it was Julie talking about making our lives count, or Eric talking about where's your treasure, or Carrie talking about stewardship, Sarah talked about God's taking care of our needs, and David last week spoke on the cost of discipleship. All of that has led us to this point in making disciples. We need to do all of those things with a Christ-like attitude and mindset so that we can be effective disciple makers in every area of our lives. So this is now where we're going to actually get to our passages for this evening. Our first passage, like I said, is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And I'll read it for you guys once again. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So unpacking this a little bit, the first thing that I want to point out is at the very beginning of verse 18, which is sometimes isn't even an afterthought when we read this passage. Jesus, a resurrected Jesus at this point in history, says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. This clearly shows that he is claiming deity. He has authority over everything. He is saying that God and himself are the same. This flies in the face of those that might say that Jesus cannot be God because he, he doesn't say that he is. He says it right there in verse 18 and a myriad of other times throughout the Gospels. Now, moving on to verses 19 and 20, they're very popular, especially here within Crew, um, and rightfully so. But sometimes we miss Jesus' true intent, or at least gloss over it. These verses, these verses absolutely explain the importance of going, but there's so much more than just simply that. Throwing in some, grammar, some Greek grammar for you guys, the imperative action in this passage is not to go, which is what, we, which is, what common, is commonly thought, but to make, make disciples. That's what Jesus is talking about when he gives this great commission. Um, and after making disciples, we are to send them out. Jesus implores his disciples, as he implores us in this very instance, to make disciples. The other verbs in verse 19, go, baptize, and teach, are all used to describe, describe aspects of the making process. One of the things that I really love about this, this passage as well is in verse 20, um, where it says that Jesus will be with us until the very end of the age. We are not alone in this disciple-making process and never will be. Jesus will always be with us in the form of the Holy Spirit. The expectation of discipleship is one that we cannot rise to in our own strength. We are called to do things that are impossible on our own. And we will probably often see ourselves falling short in, a, in many ways. But those are the moments that we must remember the unending, gra unending grace of Jesus and we must rely on the Holy Spirit to work in and through us. So going back to the passage again, we also sometimes get confused on the amount of commands given in this, these three passages. Some people like to look at it um, and take multiple and separate commands out of it by saying go or make or go or sin, possibly baptizing if you believe in that, and teaching once you get around to it. But Jesus actually gives one sole command, to go and sin and baptize and teach. 
That's a big difference. I think one hesitation that people may feel in obeying this command is that we are each individuals on a planet of seven plus billion people. Obviously, we cannot ourselves, as individuals, reach everybody. But that is the importance of disciple making. We make disciples so that we can multiply the faith and also so that we can multiply our efforts in reaching the world. That is, making disciples and sending them out to the places you are not and cannot go. Some of you could be thinking that, sure, I can see the value in making disciples, but I, I think what we really need to do is continue to evangelize and see people come to Christ. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. Evangelism, evangelism is, is paramount to the Christian faith and is absolutely necessary to being a disciple of Jesus. But evangelizing to make disciples that make disciples is so much more strategic. Just so you guys know, there is a biblical basis to what I'm saying about this, and that is 2 Timothy 2.2, which says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So up here on the screen now, you will see an awesome chart showcasing the vision and thought process behind this verse, making disciples and why it is essential. In the first situation, you see uh, 100 people receive Christ every single day. That's stunning. So after one year, you'll see 36,500 people receive Christ. In the second scenario, what we have is someone, is you taking on a disciple for six months, and then at the end of the six months, you send them out to go make other disciples. So obviously, at the end of the first year, you only have four people. But if we extrapolate that and keep that going, by year 16, in scenario number one, with 100 people receiving Christ daily with you, that's 584,000 new Christians, which is pretty awesome and would be amazing to see happen. But with a discipleship chain of you you teaching a new disciple every six months, and then them going and making their own disciple, teaching them, building them up in the faith to send them out to go make more disciples. At the end of 16 years, we will have 4,294,967,296 new Christians who not only are Christians, but are trained in making disciples. That's a major difference. And that's how we will reach this, this earth with the good news of the gospel. If someone did that right here, right now, and that continued, you will have four billion disciples before you turn 40. I think there's some major ramifications for this happening on the entire planet, if this would happen. In 17 years, so just take that one more year, the entire globe would not only be a follower of Christ, but also a multiplying disciple. That's incomprehensible. So I'm just going to let that sink in for a second, because that's, that's pretty cool. I like that, that chart. <laughs> so I know that my, to- my talk tonight is entitled Making Disciples, and that's the true subject of why I'm up here. But I would be remiss not to take the time to bring up what I think is a proper subtitle, Going to the Nations. Another passage that we talked about earlier is Matthew 9, 37 and 38, which says, Then he said to his disciples, 
The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This passage speaks to the dire need for people to accept the command of the Lord and to go wherever he wants us to go. I grew up the son of a farmer who my father and my mother and my sister are actually here tonight. So, um, But because my dad is a farmer, I understood that when certain seasons of the year approached, I would see him less and less because the harvest of that time was ripe. Whether it was coin, corn, soybeans, or wheat. I did that earlier too, and I was embarrassed then too. <laughs> it was time for him to do his job as a farmer and bring in the crops. You can't, not, you can't go about this process after the crop has been ripe for a while, because then we're getting into spoiled territory or no longer good. Kurt von Schleicher, I hope I said that right, who is a da- Dallas area pastor, so if you look him up, he's the Dallas pastor and not the same Kurt von Schleicher who was a Hitler ally pre-World War II. Um, so it's the pastor down in Dallas. He said that the God of grace often gives us a second chance, but there is no second chance to harvest a ripe crop. This is urgent. The urgency that is apparent in the scripture is still here today, and even more so. When it comes to the Great Commission, we rightly emphasize the dire need for people to be sent out to the nations, spreading the good news of what Jesus has done for us. But sometimes we miss that the Great Commission applies to me, to you, and every other believer. As Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China, once said, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. Or as John Piper puts it more bluntly, we can go, sin, or disobey. Now this does not obviously mean that everyone puts his or her career paths in the garbage to become a missionary living in a hut in Africa. Although that could actually be the case for some of you. What it does mean is that we need to live missionally. It means that the gospel should always be on our lips, ready to speak about to anyone in any situation. That could be as a teacher, a nurse, or an architect. But it doesn't matter whom you are, where you are at in life, or where you think you're headed. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are commanded to fulfill the Great Commission. That's not for someone else. That's for you. That might make you uncomfortable. Good. We weren't called to live for comfort. That might make you make a sacrifice. David Livingstone, who was a British medical missionary and explorer of Africa in the 1860s, answered that by saying, if a commission from an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? For those of you who are still not convinced or still think that God is not calling you to do this, I want to share this quote from William Booth, who's the founder of the Salvation Army. Not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say? Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fires of hell. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. That's a convicting quote. Gets me every single time. I'm convicted right here reading it. 
But what he says is so true. I think sometimes we don't want to think about what the consequences are of us not going and making disciples. And what those consequences are, are that family, friends, loved ones, acquaintances, and strangers alike who do not know the Lord will not go to heaven when they die, and they will go to hell. If that makes you feel uncomfortable, good. That should break your heart, because it for sure breaks God's. Julie mentioned a couple weeks ago that human souls are one of three things that last for eternity. And in light of this, the work we do making disciples and sending them to the nation has internal significance. I have a statistic for you guys that is shocking when you step back and think about it. Did you guys know that there are at least 4.7 billion people in the world right now who claim a religion other than Christianity? 4.7. And that does not even take into account the Christmas Easter Christians or the ones who claim Christianity to fit in or just grew up in the church but never took the faith seriously. That number, alarmingly, is probably actually closer to six, six and a half billion people who do not know the Lord or have a personal relationship with him. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Join the laborers, become the farmer, seek after the lost, and bring them into the kingdom of God. So all of this being said, the reason why I put this urgency out in this, um, on this is because I truly believe that we are the generation that can fulfill the Great Commission. And that may sound shocking to you, but if it does, I strongly encourage you to read the book, The Finishers by Roger Hershey. <clears throat> How, we, can, we have the means of transportation to get anywhere in the world, and we certainly have the technology. The only thing we're missing is the people. That is literally the only thing standing from this moment in time and us fulfilling the Great Commission, which would usher in the return of Jesus, which is talked about in Matthew 24, 14, which says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We are legitimately that close. We are so close to seeing the scene from Revelation 7, 9, and 10 happen. After this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm, ranch, palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. We are so close to this scene playing out right before our eyes, so close to the return of Christ. But we need to take action. It's not going to happen if we just sit on our hands and wait. We have a part in this, which is to make disciples and send them to the nations. Oswald J. Smith, who, is a Canadian, who was a Canadian pastor and author, says, we talk about the second coming, but half the world hasn't even heard of the first. <clears throat> now, I know I can say all this, and you could be nodding your head along or agreeing with what I'm saying, but the reality is that some of you might not know how to live this out. I have a couple ideas and thoughts about how this, you can take this talk and apply it to your life. The first and most obvious way is to go on a mission trip with crew. The trip you go on, no matter which one, will build you up in your own faith and train you in how to make disciples and share your faith. Wherever you're at in your walk with the Lord, you are more than welcome to join crew on a summer or spring break trip. I know we have a contingent going to Virginia Beach this summer, and it's not too late to sign up for the PCB trip for, on, for spring break. Take a step of faith. Get outside your comfort zone. 
Go and learn alongside others. Another practical way for you to live this out is actually becoming a missionary. Join staff with crew, whether it be as an intern here at Ball State or on a stint, which stands for short-term international, um, and would look like you going abroad and working for crew for a year, which is what I did last year in East Asia. Give over control of a year of your life. I would actually suggest the whole life, but give over control a year of your life and see what God will do through you and in you. Because he is going to use you in ways you never thought possible, and I can personally attest to this. But I don't know, I don't know that, I, I do know that some of these things are not what God has in store for you. Just because on your taxes you don't write down missionary does not mean God is through with you or can't use you. Become a light in whatever career path you've chosen. Spread the gospel at the water cooler. Really get to know and love your coworkers. Join a gospel-based church and get involved with it. Join a small group. Use what you have learned in your time here at Ball State and with crew and teach others. Build them up in the faith and send them out to make disciples of their own. These aren't really hard steps to do in light of eternity. Just take the plunge and say yes to God. So I want to end my time tonight with a little audience participation. I want to visibly show you guys the effects of a few generations of discipleship and what it's had on this very room. So some pictures are going to be shown up here of the six Ball State Stenters who have been out of school now for a year or two. Some of my favorite people in the entire world are right there on one screen. And yes, I did choose probably the most embarrassing pictures for at least the bottom three because those are the guys I was with last year. <clears throat> but for those of you that don't know these people at all, I bet you have, had, you have in some small way felt the effects of them being students right here at Ball State. So right now, I'm going to ask that any person who has personally been discipled or has had their personal walk with the Lord influenced by one of these six people stand up and remain standing. All right, so what, 25% of the room? <clears throat> All right, everyone that's still seated, take a look around the room. If someone that is standing currently has personally discipled you or influenced your personal walk with the Lord, please stand up. All right, guys, let's do that one more time. So any of you that are still sitting, take a look around the room. Once again, the same parameters apply to you. If someone standing has personally discipled you or influenced your walk with the Lord, stand up. I'm pretty sure that's just about everybody in the entire room. That's three generations of discipleship right there. Look at that. I wasn't actually prepared. Yeah, you guys can sit down. I actually wasn't prepared for everyone to stand up, so that's just, that's blowing me away even as I stand up here. But what we just saw was the effect of six people devoting some time and heart here at Ball State. Wow, I'm that, okay. <laughs> this is the effect that people have when they invest in lives. That's the, that was the effect of discipleship right there. And that's only a small taste of what the Lord can do with this room's collective time at Ball State. 
It's not even remotely hard to imagine that if this room took discipleship seriously, we could reach the campus in five years. And I'm talking the entire student body. This, this is what we were called to do. This is what God's will and command for your life is, discipleship. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for tonight. I ask that the words spoken tonight will set a fire in the hearts, minds, and souls of everyone here. I also ask that these words will be remembered as yours, not mine. Please give us the strength and motivation to take the talk tonight and turn it into action. Be with us going after this campus. In your name we pray, amen. You can go ahead and stand. <laughs>